Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Growth League. I am Diana Kander, a Midwestern mom of two and keynote speaker. And like you, I feel the call to grow. To get us inspired for the week, every Monday, I seek out the most remarkable women leaders and uncover their rule for growth. This week's rule from Alicia LaBeouf, take the hard assignments. This episode is brought to you by Influence & Co. To find out how Influence & Co. can help you create relevant content, get more leads, improve your SEO, and drive exposure for your brand, go to influenceandco.com slash growth. My guest today is Alicia LaBeouf. Alicia is the head of retail at Facebook, now Meta, where her team is responsible for helping retailers navigate digital marketing and transformation. Prior to joining Meta, Alicia most recently served as Senior Vice President of Retail and Marketing for Canteen. And before that, she was a Senior Director at Target in a variety of different roles for 10 years. She's traveled to over 20 countries, is a proud and active mom of two amazing kids, an avid runner, an experienced at-home chef for her family, and prides herself on being an advocate for social justice. Here's my conversation with Alicia LaBeouf. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Diana. I'm excited to be here. You make me sound like an amazing woman. <laughs> you are an amazing woman. That's why you're on the show. We we pre-screen. Everybody. You pre-screen. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Let's start with a big growth experience in your career. Tell me about joining Target. Yeah, so I joined Target in 2008. I was in my mid-20s. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I decided to take the leap and join Target. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made um, in hindsight. I will say in the moment, it was a it was a hard decision and it was a lot of growth. So I left North Carolina and moved to Minnesota at the start of winter in October. (laughs) The day I got to Minnesota, it snowed, I think, like 10 inches. And I literally spent the whole winter wondering what I had done with my life. But Um, It all worked out and it ended up being a remarkable experience. When was the moment where you were like, oh, was this a good decision? Well, the moment was when I got on the plane to go to Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think I think when you go through moments like that, you're like, "Okay, I can do this. I accepted a new job. I'm taking on the world. Target's an amazing company. I got on the plane and I sat down and I was like, am I am I really doing this? Am I really moving to Minnesota where I know like two people in the whole state? So that was the first time. I think the second time was after I had gotten in the job. And I think for the first year, I was just trying to navigate. I was trying to navigate the company. I was trying to navigate Minneapolis. And um, there were several moments in that year where I questioned, was I doing the right thing? Over time, I found my voice. I found a community and I ended up loving it. And obviously I stayed um, for a number of years, but it took time. It took time. And again, in hindsight, it was a period of probably the most tremendous growth I had as a professional. 
I'll never forget. We do this thing um, every year where you get feedback as a leader and your team basically can, you know, share. They give you 360 feedback, essentially. And one of the years I got my 360 feedback and um, I was like, this this can't be right. Like there's red all over this page. Like this can't be right. <laughs> you know, I at that time I was a, a new leader. Um, I had a small but mighty team and I thought I was doing all the right things. I thought I was showing my A game. I thought I was being supportive. And that a survey was very humbling for me because it showed that I wasn't as, I guess, remarkable that I thought I was. It showed that I wasn't a great listener. Um, it showed that I wasn't developing my team the way I should. It showed that they wanted more from me. I don't know if at that point in my career, I had had a lot of moments where you get feedback on yourself. Like people say they want feedback, but, you know, <laughs> feedback is like the gift that you really don't want. That you're like, oh, thank you. Great. Thank you for this feedback. Right. Um, you know, you need it, but you don't necessarily want it. And so it really allowed me, I think, to just kind of pause and say, why am I doing this? What is what is being an authentic leader to me mean? And how do I use this as a pivotal moment to change the way that I uh, manage teams and interact with people? Well, I think you bring up a really important point. You know, a lot of leaders say, you know, I have an open door policy. I encourage feedback on how I'm doing. But you know, what kind of level of confidence would it take for your team to walk into your office and, and say, That's right. I, I think you're bad at listening. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I'll never forget, I, in addition to just being present, which, you know, is about listening and, and just being in the moment. There was some feedback about my ability to like, just again, be present and be in this moment. And someone mentioned that every time they came in my office, I was like, my back would be to them. Or I was always on my laptop or looking at my phone and we would be going through, you know, like their agenda for the day. And I'd be like, yep, great. And I was, I was responding, but I wasn't present. And that was powerful feedback for me because I thought, now this person has taken their time to engage with me, to prepare an agenda, to come with their A game, to share their thoughts. And I'm like, I have like 10 different things going on. Like I'm listening, but I'm not present and I'm not engaged. And they're leaving feeling that. And then I thought like, what if that was me? What if I was like meeting with the CEO and he had 20 things going on, which I'm sure he does, but he wasn't present, right? And so that that changed the way that I interact with people and how I try to be present. And for me, it also just said, hey, like I wanna make sure when people leave me, they feel like they matter. Like, even if it's for five minutes, they feel like they matter, whether it's a phone conversation, they come in my office, I want them to feel like they matter and I want them to feel like I care. And as small as that is, I think that changed the way I, I lead going forward. At Target, when you got this 360 review, is it on you to take next steps or was there any coaching that was provided afterwards? How did it work? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of personal accountability, right, where you have to obviously respond to it. You can put together a plan. Luckily, I had an amazing group of sponsors and mentors that supported me. Um, and I was also super transparent with my team. You know, I think that's part of leadership is that you have to be vulnerable and tell your team, hey, here's what I think I'm good at. Here's what you all say that I'm not. And how do I improve? And I think that was the first step in changing the trajectory of my of my leadership style. <laughs> well, let me just break it down for a yeah. moment. You went to some people with this piece of paper and you're like, I heard this. Do you have any advice like that? Yeah. No, I didn't do that. I, I got the piece <laughs> of paper and then I left for the day. And then I, after I had a few emotional moments, I think I called my mom, to be honest. Uh -huh. And I was like, 
I was like, mom, I like I was, you know, sad and emotional. And then I got mad. And I remember, you know, my mom's great. She just listened. And then she said, Alicia, like, I agree with some of those things. And I was like, what? Oh, my what gosh. <laughs> not you, too, mom. I was like, not you, too. You're the enemy. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but no, after I took a day. Right. And just kind of let it sink in. I then reached out to some of the mentors that I trust. And I said, hey, I want to go through this with you. And I have one mentor in particular. His name is Cyrus. And I, I, I love him and still in contact with him to this day. We literally read it together. And he step by step just said, what do you think about this? Have you do you understand what this feedback might mean? How might we pivot together? And that was really the start of me feeling like I wasn't on my own, right? Like that I was in this with people that cared about me. They wanted to see me succeed. So we did that. And then I also created safe spaces. So I got the feedback. And I I think the other piece you, you mentioned, you know, people don't want to give you feedback directly. I wanted the team to feel like, hey, like it's fine that it's on the sheet of paper, but I also want you to feel like you can come to me. So I had a few chat sessions where they were open door. Hey, I want to talk about this or I want to pick your brain on this. Um, and slowly but surely, the team was like, yeah, like we think you're authentic. We we like talking to you, but sometimes you're distracted. Sometimes you don't listen or sometimes we don't know if you really care what we think. And so I think really just asking those hard questions around what would make you feel like I care or how do you like to be recognized or, you know, how do you want me to develop you? Like, what does that look like in terms of um, your career? I think also created buy-in with the team where they felt like they had some shared, you know, it was like a shared success story. And so those are some of the steps that I took to really respond to and dissect the feedback and, and make some changes. And you were a target for for 10 years in which you had a pretty fast rise to leadership. What do you attribute that success to? I just was strategic about the roles that I took. I was strategic about the relationships that I tried to broker. I had a lot of people helping to guide me throughout my career. And um, I wasn't afraid to take the hard assignments. What's the value that I'm adding? And then what's the value that I'm getting? And always ask that question in any assignment that I took. What do you mean by hard assignments? When I say hard assignments, I mean the assignments that like make you sit up straight, the assignments that are going to teach you something, the assignments that may be a little bit outside beyond the experience that you bring. Right. But you know that after you do this job, you're going to be so much more prepared in a certain area of expertise or as a leader. Um, And maybe even the assignments that aren't as I would say sexy or cool. Right. Um, So like an example of that, you know, for me would be after I had stayed at corporate for a while, I actually went into the stores organization, which actually ended up being one of the best jobs I ever had. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted to get the true retail experience. And at the time, that wasn't necessarily a path that a lot of leaders took. Like most leaders started in stores and worked their way up to corporate. And I actually did the opposite. You know, I think so many people think about their career in terms of titles, and you approached it very similar to the way I did. I really wanted the first decade of my career to be a skill building time. I would think of it like Batman's utility belt, and I would be like, I want to learn this skill and that skill. Is that how you thought about it? Yes, yes. Like I knew, um, I actually just turned 41. So for me, I was like, I'm going to spend my 30s just building. I'm going to spend my 30s really just gra- uh, gathering skills. I'm going to spend my 30s learning. Like, this is the time where I can take risk. 
I don't want to be taking a risk when I turn 50, but I can take a risk at 35. Right. And in the back of my mind, I was like, look, if this doesn't work out, it's okay. I can pivot. I could go back to school. I could figure it out. And that was my philosophy. I was like, I'm going to get finance experience. I'm going to get store experience. I'm going to get P&L experience. I'm going to get HR experience. I'm going to get strategy experience. I'm going to get experience leading a team. And I was like, I'm going to basically build a toolbox and every job I have is going to be adding a different tool to that toolbox. And that's how I approached it. It's so powerful because, you know, a lot of people, when they hear you say you were strategic, it was like I was looking for the next highest level that was available. But that's not at all what you mean. It's not at all. I think careers can be, you know, they're they're matrix. They can go lateral. Sometimes you got to take a step back to go up. Um, And, you know, I think people that think, oh, I just need to look at the next level up or what's the title is the title the next level up. That's a dangerous that's a dangerous thing to play because you might find yourself in a career long term that you really don't like or or that you really can't do. Right. Because you've only chased the title and actually didn't chase the substance or the skills that um, I think are going to continue to make you evolve as a leader and be relevant as your career continues. Very powerful. I have two little kids and it feels like they tag team with one another on who's going to wake us up throughout the night. There are many mornings that it feels like quite a challenge to get out of bed. Sometimes I feel like I could drink an unlimited number cups of coffee after the first one. But I have this rule that I've given myself. I will not have a second cup of coffee until I've had my AG1 by Athletic Greens first. As soon as I consume all of those vitamins and minerals, I feel energized for the day, great about myself, and like I don't even need that second cup of coffee. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens that will all help you start your day right. People ask me, does it taste good? I think it tastes like a Jolly Rancher. I enjoy the taste of it in the morning. Certainly, it tastes better than a cup of black coffee. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com growth. Again, that's athleticgreens.com growth to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hey there, it's Diana Kander, and I want to let you know about a new podcast that you've got to hear. It's called The Juggernaut Interviews Founders. Listening to business podcasts, you can see a common theme with a glossy version of startup success. The kid genius with a crazy technical chops who succeeds instantly and whose face quickly adorns every magazine cover. But with The Juggernaut Interviews Founders, you'll hear a totally different story. On this new podcast, Juggernaut founder Snigda Sor interviews South Asian entrepreneurs about the startups that they've created and the cultural legacies that they're building along the way. The Juggernaut Interviews gives you a front row seat on tomorrow's businesses and the next decade's leaders. Because at the end of the day, it's not about how I built this, but how I'm building this. Listen to the Juggernaut Interviews founders wherever you get your podcasts and tell them I sent you. Before our interview, you shared one other moment of growth that I'd love to talk about. That was your your first pregnancy and how that changed you as a leader. Yeah. So I got married in 2014 and uh, shortly thereafter, we were expecting our, our first child. And, you know, everything was going great. I was working. I was expecting my first child, doing all the things, you know, micromanaging everything, like getting ready. 
And I'll never forget, it was, I think it was like a Thursday night and I was 24 weeks pregnant and my husband was traveling and uh, my water broke. And initially I was like, wait, something's not right. I don't think this is right. And, and, you know, I called my husband and he was in a meeting. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to drive myself to the hospital. So I drove myself to the hospital and I didn't know my water had broken. And, you know, they kind of do all the scans. And uh, the nurse said, she was like, ma'am, your water broke. And I was like, what? And I immediately just kind of went into action mode. Right. Because I'm a doer. I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? What have I done? Like, tell me. Yeah, fill it back up. What needs to happen? And, you know, I kind of learned through a bunch of conversations like that sometimes that can happen, but you have to be on bed rest. And amniotic fluid is essentially, you know, baby urine and it can reseal itself in your uterus. But that means that you just can't move. And so literally when I drove myself to the hospital, I stayed there for about 10 weeks. It was hard. It was painful. It was probably one of the hardest times in my life. Um, So I was in antepartum with my feet up working with my laptop and just trying to stay pregnant. That was a moment for me because, you know, and I think any mom can relate when you have a child, you realize it's no longer about you. Like when you're pregnant, you know that. But when you have the child, you're like, this person is reliant on me for their well-being, for their life. And I'm responsible for that. And it's a it's a huge opportunity. It's a huge, I think, mental shift in how you think about your life. And so for me, It started early because I knew that this baby that I was growing um, was relying on me to keep him healthy and safe. And there was a part of me that that as a mom, I think I felt like I failed because I was doing so many things and running around. So anyway, I stayed pregnant for 10 weeks. I used that time to reflect. I used that time to pray. I used that time to really just reprioritize. Because I was I was working, I was you know all about the next job, all about the opportunity, and I just started to think like, look, this is what life is about. Like I, I got to pause, I got to refocus, and I did that. Good thing is I stayed pregnant. My son was born a little prematurely at 34 weeks, and he was 100% healthy. He didn't even have to go in the NICU. Um, he just had to get bigger. He was he was three pounds and three ounces. I'll never forget. Um, and he was born. And then the other hard part is he was born, but had to stay in the hospital for about a month to get bigger because they want babies to at least be, I think, like five and a half pounds or five pounds before they're discharged. So to leave my baby in the hospital after I'd had him was uh, was another hard milestone. So for me, I went from this busy leader to leading a team and all of that to now like I'm in the hospital on bed rest, can't do anything to like now I've had the baby and this precious being that I birthed, I can't even take home with me. So there were a lot of a lot of lows. Um, My husband was amazing and remarkable and there with me every step of the way. But it really made me reshift to really think about what what is my North Star? Why am I doing this? What do I want out of my life? And I, you know, I thought I had knew the answers to those questions. But I think when you have to pause and when, when a life event like that happens, you really say, okay. This is great, but like now that I have a little person and there are other people relying on me, I need to make sure that everything I'm doing has a purpose and I'm doing it with intention. After I brought my son home and I was on maternity leave for a while and it was amazing and it was great, I think I came back different. I think I started working differently. I think I had a different balance about me where it wasn't all about work, but it was about work life integration. I know that's a a term people use. 
And if, and for me, I think it made me a better leader ultimately. How do you think you're different as a, as a leader than you were beforehand? After that situation, I am much more patient. Before, I wouldn't say I was high strung, but I would say I was very like, go, go, go. Uh, I always was on to the next thing. The pace of my life, I always had like 50 tabs open, right, in my brain. When that happened, everything shut down. My sole focus was my son and his well-being and our family. And so after that, I feel like I came back different. I was much more chill. It was almost like somebody, you know, like God was like, here's a huge chill pill for you. Like none of this stuff that's happening to you matters except this. Like just chill out. So I had much more patient. I had this aura about me that I think I was like, you know what? If something bad happens, it's okay. There's no lives at stake. And I think when a situation like that happens in your life, you put things in perspective and you say, yeah, this is a big deal, but it is all going to work out. It is fine. How does Alicia from today manage an Alicia from five, 10 years ago and communicate that to somebody who hasn't had one of those kind of eye-opening moments? That's a great question. So I would say that a part of being a leader is also, or a manager is also knowing the life stage or the priorities of the people that you're leading. Where are they? Where are they in their life? Where are they? What, what do they value? What's important to them, right? And so in that situation, when I was going through this, I had an amazing boss who I'm still in contact with today. And he is very chill and relaxed. And, you know, he, he, he actually embodies exactly what I'm talking about. And I remember just in knowing him, I always thought he had this remarkable ability to, if there was a storm going on, he was the calm in the storm. He was the one that people were like, don't you see the fire is burning and you're just standing there. And he'd be like, I got a plan. And you know what? It all worked out. So I think as leaders, you have to understand where people are, what they care about. There will be things that happen in their life, right? Like I lead a large team today. A lot of my team members um, are dealing with the pandemic. A lot of them have had COVID-19. A lot of them have had issues in their family. Some of them have had fatalities throughout the year. And at the end of the day, when things, when it's a matter of life and death, Nothing else matters to that person. And I think as a manager, you have to realize that. And so it's not a matter of if something happens, it's a matter of when, right? It could be a life situation. It could be good things like a wedding, a baby, relocation, all those things. So when life moments happen, I think managers have to do a really good job of understanding where their people are and still be able to connect with them, understand how they can support them and serve them. If you want to continue to get to get the best out of your employees, that would be my advice. You attributed a lot of your early success at Target on taking the hard assignments. Is that something that you're continuing to this day? Yeah. I, and I don't you know what? That's a good question. I don't know if I would say hard assignments, but like we just relocated to Chicago about nine months ago. That was a hard choice, right? To leave my comfort zone of Charlotte. I love Charlotte. My family's in Charlotte to relocate to Chicago, and also the choice to uh, leave a traditional retail role to come to tech. In hindsight, one of the best decisions I made, but at the time it was hard because I was like, can I do this? Are they sure they have the right person? Like, I don't know, right? You second guess yourself. 
you know, I had a little bit, a little bit of imposter syndrome where I was like, this is a big job. Like, can I really do this? Um, I remember going through interview loops and I was like, I don't know, all these people like are a gazillion times smarter than I am. So yes, I would say at the end of the day, I am still taking the hard assignment and it has again, proven to be the right choice. I think it, people get excited about the opportunity ahead and don't think enough about what they're saying goodbye to and that safety that you've articulated. Like it's it's almost like a sense of loss <laughs> to that yes. safety and security. Yes. I mean, we all th- we all crave security. We all crave, you know, comfort. We all are comfortable with what we know. A lot of people are not comfortable with what they don't know, right? When you think about the times where you have truly grown as a leader, it's typically in those moments of uncertainty, of it could be a risk. There's always this, I was telling my husband the other night, there's a saying that I like to say where it's like, you know, you you play the what if question. What if this doesn't work out? What if I fail at it? What if we move to Chicago and it's horrible? What if I take this job and I get fired in a month? What if the team hates me? And I think in that scenario, it's also good to play out the alternate view. But what if it does work out, right? What if Chicago is the city that you're supposed to be in? What if this job is going to be the best thing ever and the team is going to love you? What if this job is going to give you the skills you need to really thrive, right? And I think when you have a much more balanced approach, it's like, okay, then the, the idea of staying where you are is not an option. And so for me, Diana, when I was evaluating, you know, or any opportunity that I evaluate, when I was evaluating this opportunity, it scared me to stay the same. Like, yes, it was comfortable. Yes, I'm from Charlotte. Yes, my mom lived down the street. Yes, I had two small kids. But I was like, what if this stayed like this for the next 10 years? Would I be okay with that? Would I always wonder what if? And the answer to that question was yes. And that's the moment where I knew I had to do it. I'm weighing a decision right now, and I feel like you're talking right to my soul <laughs> about it. It's listen, it's always scary. Like in my in my experience, anything worth having, anything worth going for, it's going to be there's going to be an element of scary to it. And if there's not an element of scary, I would question like, is this really what you want? Or I don't know. But and, and scary could be a step back. It could be it more work, be. less money. You know, starting from scratch, it can mean a lot of different things. That's right. And I'm not saying that every decision I have ever made that is (laughs) scary has worked out. Trust me, I've made a lot of bad decisions, but I've always learned from them. Okay, time for the speed round. All right. I love it. Yes. Okay. What's a good practice for somebody to do in their first 100 days in a new job? to set themselves up for success? I would say a good practice is to chart your course of how you're going to meet people. So one thing I do, I have a solid onboarding plan. That's number one. So like anytime you start a new job, get an onboarding plan. Like your your company, your boss, your peer, somebody should create one for you. It doesn't have to be fully vetted, but like you have an onboarding plan when you come in that's going to chart, like here's what success looks like for me in you know the first half or the first year. The second thing I do is every time I meet somebody, I ask them for three people I should meet. So literally my first year in this job, I've done that. I've said, hey, great conversation. Thank you so much. Who Who are three people in this organization you think I should meet? And this is me building my network. So after year one, 
you should at least have a solid and robust group of people that you can go to and ask for advice and cultivate those relationships over time. I think a lot of people think that they are sheepish about doing it at the beginning, but at the beginning is when people are most likely to help you. They're I, most I likely to help me. Yes. yes. <laughs> I still say I'm new. I've been in a, I've been in, I've been in a new job for for a, I just uh, celebrated a year. It's yeah. crazy. It's been a year. I still say, hey, I'm new here, but I would just love to learn. And anytime you say that, people are like, great, I love to help you. People want to help. They want to help. So they want to help students. They want to help new people. That's right. I just think people underestimate. You You think that being new or being, you know, young is a, is a setback, but it's actually a huge advantage to meeting huge amazing advantage. people. Huge advantage. Use it. I had so much coffee. <laughs> Zoom, Zoom, virtual coffees. It's crazy. But use it to your advantage when you start a new job. What is something that you used to think was a talent, like something ingrained, but you've now realized is a skill that you can develop and strengthen? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, strategy. Early in my career, I feel like that was an overused word, like strategic thinking, <laughs> build a strategy, put a, you know, put a strategy deck together. And I remember like I have some friends who are masters in this. When I say masters, I mean, they can put a strategy de- deck together that has forecasts and financials and a competitive landscape and recommendations. I mean, I was like, you are a genius. And I still think they're geniuses. But <laughs> over time, I've learned that you can learn how to do that, right? You can you can pick up skills along the way that help you understand what the long-term vision is and then sort of back into what, you know, how to execute that and do that in a strategic way. And so I think that's one of those muscles that is hard. I think it's hard to kind of be in the moment and be delivering whatever project, revenue or task you have at hand, but also to understand the year, five year and 10 year play. Because the reality is a lot of times you're you're hired to do this job and to do it now. You're not really hired to think about the five and the 10 year play, but companies now are, are they value that. This is an exceptional answer that you just gave. And I would love to combine it with your previous answer because even though they're not asking you for your strategic planning now, it's a great subject to talk about with all those people that you're meeting throughout the company and get feedback. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. If you wrote a professional development book on any subject, what would it be? It would be authenticity. Hmm. It would be about the value of authenticity. And the reason why it would be about the value of authenticity is I'm going to tie this back to the, to the story I told you about my, my feedback and how I had to pivot. That at the end of the day, like, you know, I was kind of taught that you separate personal and professional, like you're you're one way at work and then you're another way when you're with your friends or you're at home. I think now in 2022, that's kind of a little bit of a myth. And with social media, that's a myth because people want to know you. They want to know your life. They want to know the values you have. They want to know what you do in your spare time. They want to know who is Alicia outside of these four walls. I think I spent a lot of time early in my career learning who I was and almost, you know, I hate to say it, but like almost trying to be something that I'm not trying to imitate other leaders that I thought were amazing. And not that these leaders weren't amazing, but they just weren't me. I spent a lot of time faking it. I spent a lot of time um, not being true to myself. And so if I were to write a book, it would be about the power of authenticity and the power of essentially bringing your whole and true self to whatever task you're doing, to whatever job you're doing. Um, because that is the value that really is going to differentiate you. Alicia, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for the conversation. Of course. Man, I feel like we just started talking. Uh, can we can we be best friends? Just- 
How awesome was Alicia? I wish I could start every day with a pep talk from that amazing woman. Now, to help you get more out of each episode, we're trying something new here at the Growth League. I'm going to be discussing the conversation with one of the producers of the show and hopefully pulling out even more takeaways. So today, joining me is one of the producers, Edie Allard. Edie, welcome. Hello, hello. What did you think of that amazing conversation? I was so blown away by Alicia at every turn. When she said that she spent 10 weeks in the hospital when she was pregnant, my jaw just dropped. Like, I couldn't believe it. The things that she's been through and her stories were so incredible. I really feel like I walked away learning a ton. What stood out for you? What was, you know, one of the biggest takeaways for you? I'm 25 going on 26 in March. And I think what really resonated with me at this point in my career right now was when Alicia mentioned that strategy is not actually a talent. It is a skill, but it's not a skill that you just learn organically while on the job. It's something that you have to be really conscious about building. And there are so many skills in my career that I feel like I've just naturally picked up. But, you know, strategizing and these like higher level thinking ones are usually left to people that are like managers or higher up in a company. So now I'm at the point in my career where I really want to start developing those skills and finding opportunities to take hard assignments that help me learn that. But it's pretty challenging. You know, one of my goals for the show, Edie, is to help people understand that most things that you look up to and you see as talents for people that you admire are actually skills that you yourself can develop. And and the key to building those skills on your own is not to think about what do I want to be good at, but who can I talk to to learn about this new skill set? So for you, I would just ask you, who are the people in your life who you could go to immediately and be like, I want to develop this strategy skill. What do you think I should do? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And a great thing about being at WMN is that we're surrounded with a lot of really great talent here. And, you know, we're a small, close-knit company. So there are lots of people that I can go to and talk to. Awesome. Thank you again to Influence & Co. for sponsoring this show. If you're having trouble scaling your content marketing efforts to see results, I highly recommend having a strategy call with Influence & Co. It's one of the only agencies that I've found that will handle your on-site content needs and your PR. It is awesome to be able to consolidate those efforts and maximize your results. Visit influenceandco.com slash growth to learn more. And if you mention me or the Growth Leak during your first call with Influence & Co., you get $500 off your first month. That's it for this week's episode of The Growth League. By the way, this podcast is also a community. We have a Facebook page called The Growth League where you can meet like-minded individuals, start a growth project. The link is down in the show notes and I look forward to seeing you there. I am Diana Kander wishing you an amazing growth-filled week. The Growth Leak is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Edie Allard, Adesua Agbanile, and Taylor Williamson. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan, and our editor is Emily Rudder.